0: Father, it's by the uh, work and word of your spirit that we can hear your truth, and we pray that you would speak to us today. As uh, we read uh, a passage written to churches, I pray that you, in in your power, would address it to us, that you would make it real to us, that uh, we might hear and know uh, your sanctification, that we might hear and know... Uh, your workings, your rebuking, your encouragement and your comfort. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a few weeks ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 1, and I'm just going to read, uh, just. A, you don't need to get this up, this is just a little bit of background uh, of what's going on here. He said, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was on a prison island because he was a Christian. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I heard a voice behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see in this book and send it to the seven churches. Then he named seven churches and these letters are going to go to each church. Um, And then he turns and he sees someone... uh, behind him who's speaking and and he has this incredible vision of Jesus and Jesus is walking between lampstands if you can imagine a a room I don't know how you picture it and there's these seven lampstands and Jesus is walking in between them and then later uh, at the end at the end of the chapter it says this the seven lampstands are the seven churches it introduces you to something in the Revelation, uh, which is, it's figurative. There's figurative language right through it. So whenever you see a lampstand, we're not talking about a lampstand, we're talking about a church. What does a lampstand do? Well, it shines light, doesn't it? A lampstand that you, yeah shines, shines the light to the world. Uh, and that's what the church is, isn't it? And Jesus is walking among the seven churches. He's observing them. He's with them. He's speaking to them and um, he gives this message through John to them. But this message is not just for John because um, it says in verse 7 of chapter 2: whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, it's not just, I'm writing for this church, but this message is for all the churches. Because every part of every message relates to all churches. Okay. It's important for us to see that. And through this, Jesus is bringing his guidance. He's bringing his comfort. He's bringing his discipline to his beloved churches. Jesus loves his churches. And so he brings uh, his guidance, his comfort, his discipline. Okay. We uh, had three daughters, as some of you might know, and I I just want to give a bit of understanding that this is a very bad analogy, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, When we were raising our children, uh, one of the really important things to do as a parent is to observe your children. You watch them. Uh, What are they doing? How are they speaking? What are their habits? What's their character looking like? Those sort of things. And teaching them, loving them, caring for them, disciplining them in light of what you see. Now, so, so often we talk about discipline, we think naturally of smacking. And there's nothing wrong with that. This is going on podcast. <laughs> okay. But there's, that's, that's only a very small part of discipline, actually. A lot of discipline is just plain instruction. And um, we we had at, at the camp. Someone asked a question at one point, you know, about disciplining your children. And, and so much of the focus, they've just done wrong. Discipline them. That's important. But how about teaching them when they haven't done wrong? You know, when the Bible says, when you're driving down the road on your donkey, talk about the law of God with your children. When you're sitting around the house, not just when they're done wrong. That's not the only time the law's used, actually, is it? It's all the time. So teach your children, watch what they do, observe them, instruct them, discipline them. If they're really down and depressed, you know, that's not the time for punishment, is it? That's the time for sitting with them, encouraging them, hugging them even. Yep, loving them. And when they're doing things wrong, point it out. It's really important because this is life-giving for children. Does that make sense? And teach them the things of God. Okay, now, all of that is saying, why is Jesus walking among these lampstands? Exactly that. He's looking at his churches, he's looking at his children, and he's bringing the messages particular to them. He's working on them all the time. Now, the difference is between my analogy and this one is, uh, Jesus doesn't need to ask them questions to find out what's going on in their heads. And uh, he sees everything. He knows everything. He knows what's going on. However, um, this is about the love that God shows us. He loves us. Now, we're talking more here in the area of what people call sanctification. God is training, He's disciplining, He's building up. This is His children. He has saved them. He's shown that love which says, for this. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. He's done that. But also the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. That's that's Hebrews twelve seven. So there is a love that saves and there is a love that brings an ongoing reform and shaping of us. But also just notice this. This is not talking just about individuals. We naturally think down that path. This is talking about churches. And often churches will kind of have a character which is similar to most of the people in there. And he addresses churches. And it's really important to address churches because churches are a gathering. They are people who are bouncing off each other, who are teaching each other, who are shaping each other. So we, we actually are there to speak the gospel to each other, to tell the truth to each other. That's a really important part. It's a dangerous church... When you have a leader who's a ten foot above all other authority, like me, you know, and everyone's too scared to tell him anything, you got Russia there, haven't you? And and because so so then it's, the whole word of God becomes one person, and it, and it becomes ugly, whereas we could we are all about speaking the word to each other as God speaks the word to us. So this is not an individual thing; it's a gathering of church. Okay, we do live in a day. Where uh, what people tend to do is move to a church that you know, has the best toys and their Happy Meal and stuff like that. And that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the church reforming each other from within as Jesus speaks to them. Okay, For growth, for maturity. It's for those who have been saved, those who have repented and believed, those who love God, they've been reconciled through the death of Jesus. That's who we're talking to. Okay. Now, often what people do, I'll say this again, is they'll say, which church are we most like in these seven churches? And, then, and, and that can be helpful, but understand all of the words to all of the churches will be helpful for us to understand who we are and who those are around in the rest of the world. They'll, give us, they'll, they'll help us with that. But Jesus speaks personally uh, to each of those, to the churches. Now, these churches, these seven churches, are basically all located in what would be modern-day Turkey. Some of the towns are still there. Most of them are gone. There's not even anything there anymore. But each church is given promises. Each church is told something about the character of Jesus. Each church is told, I know. Jesus says, I know things about you. I'm observing them. And each church is dealt with according to its works, what it's doing, according to its character, how it's loving. Each church is either rebuked or encouraged or instructed or all three. Each church is reminded that Jesus will come again. That's pretty important for us, isn't it? Do you know, one day Jesus is going to return. It's going to be a good day. It might be after we die, it might be before, but it's going to be a good day. And each church is told uh, something... uh, An important truth which will help them to overcome, and the rewards they'll receive. So, with all that, that's a big introduction, Um, and we're going to start in chapter two, verse one. To the angel in the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, we're told in chapter one that those stars are angels who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the churches. I know your works. Your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he starts by giving them a great encouragement. This is the church of Ephesus in Acts 19. We're told Paul founded this church. And then later on, John was a pastor there and Timothy was a pastor there. And when they had Timothy, they went, oh, he's not as good as John. Oh, I like Paul better. But anyway, that's not the point. Okay. Um, and, and it seems like there's this, uh, a star with his right hand, an angel that seems to oversee a church. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Don't know how it works, but this angel ministers, that's a uh, duties within the church. And Jesus has authority over the churches. He is the head. They are the body. And so he leads his church. He is active. And he says, I know your works. That could be both encouraging and a little bit frightening. It should be both, really, shouldn't it? But, I, but he sees what we do. And the thing is, he didn't just see what we do. He knows the motives behind it. That's why it's a little bit frightening. I really, you know, looking after people. Why are you doing it? Not so they like you. Yeah. But he knows, he knows what goes on. He knows the motives. He knows what's self-glory and so on. And this church in Ephesus is known for toil, for patient endurance. They do not tolerate wicked men. It's an important part of the church. Because if you tolerate evil within the church... The church, is in, the church becomes insipid and weak and, uh, and, in fact, it walks away from God. But this church has persevered. It's maintained purity and faith and practice. That's good. But then in verse 4 he says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This church had abandoned their first love. And that word abandoned doesn't mean they just, you know, just forgot. It's more of a deliberate walking away from. They walked away from their first love. It's actually easy to drift away from your first love when you get stuck into getting everything right. Getting your doctrine right. You've got to get everything right. Do you know that person's wrong there, that person's wrong there, that person's wrong there, and you lose your first love. You, 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 leave, you lose the amazing love that you're supposed to have for God. We're, we're first and foremost about him. But this is not saying, so be all on about love and don't worry about doctrine. <laughs> because if you in, in, in the right way, if you read his word and you seek his heart, you will fall in love with him more the more you know about him. So doctrine and love are together. But we also have this tendency, especially if you're someone who's a Bible-believing, say might be called an evangelical or something like that, we have a tendency to lose our love a bit. We we go cold. Towards others, towards God. You know that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says, You know, I can speak with the tongues of angels, I can give everything to the poor, I can do all this, but if I have no love, I'm what? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Now often when we look at the works of others, we would say, what we see is their love for a neighbour, for their neighbour, don't we? That's what we clearly see. This is not what this is being judged on. This is saying, uh, come back to your first love, which is your love for God. He judges you on that first. And he says, remember remember you've been there before yep remember from where you've fallen. remember the place you were, go back to there, repent and do the works you did at first. Now those works are not talking about now get your doctrine right now go and do good deeds for the poor. he's saying the works you need is to is to love God with, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength like you used to. You've drifted away from that. So remember it and go back to it. They're told to repent twice. There is a sober warning. The lampstand will be removed. You'll be, your light will be snuffed out, in, in a sense, is what he's saying. Now, in case that brings up a whole lot of fear, this is my belief is that God's warnings in Scripture, those who have the ears of the Spirit will hear. Do you understand? He gives warnings to those he loved. Because they will hear the words and they will change. But that doesn't mean... Uh, this, sorry, I'm not saying... so. It's all going to turn out good in the end. You know that if you turn from uh, your first love, uh, well, the candle will be snuffed out. In verse 6, Yet this I, you have, you hate the words of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we all know who the Nicolaitans are, so I'll just move right on. Um, that was a joke. I oh, awesome. Um, actually they don't know a lot about who the Nicolaitans were Uh, they were a group within the church obviously and they practiced some form of immorality Um, maybe a lot of people say they sort of had an air of superiority they thought they were better than others who who knows uh, for sure but there is always people rising within the church who have some good ideas, some new ideas, who try to suck people in and take them away from the core. Is that true? Um, Yep. Like, endless amounts of people will tell you some law, some important new prophecy, some important new revelation, something else to take you away from the centrality of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. They are always looking to do it. Hold on to the centre and whoever the Nicolaitans are, don't go there. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is the gospel. It is what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. It is what he's done on the cross once and for all to forgive our sins. That as we go back to that again and again, we have kept soft towards God. Yeah, Peter in, in, in uh, 2 Peter 1, he has a... a he talks about the effectiveness and productiveness. Uh, he talks about uh, add a, make every effort to add faith, goodness, and goodness, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness. If you possess all these things, you'll be you'll be effective and productive, right? So he's saying make every effort to do these things. Then he says, but if anyone does not have these. He is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. He's saying, if you're not working as you should as a Christian, there's something you've forgotten, which is really, it's the same deliberately forgotten word. You've forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep going back to him, and then you'll have what you need to do the works that God calls you to, to drive out sin, to, to drive out bad doctrine, to live for him. Do you understand what I'm saying? You'll recognise the Nicolations not so much by what they say. Because we often talk about this as a church. Is Sometimes, and you'll get a nice shiny book from the Qur'an, and you'll say, it's kind of alright, and I can't pick that many faults with it, but there's something wrong. It's often not what's said. It's what's not said. Is it based on Jesus Christ and what he's done? Is that the heart, the foundation, the centre of everything? If it's not... it's actually askew. It'll take you on a path that, yeah, I don't know what the Nicolaitans are into, but a path that will take you away. And God hates that. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and this conquering really means, or overcoming means, the one who does what you've just been told. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now not everybody has an ear to hear, the word of the Spirit. Do you know that? The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives in that sense in all who believe. Yep. If you don't have to, So how do you receive the Holy Spirit? By trusting in Jesus by repenting from his sins, to trust in Him, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Yep. And the Holy Spirit's going to start working in you immediately, teaching you and so on. Okay, so if you have the ears of the Spirit, then do what this is saying. Because the one who has these ears will end up eating from the tree of life. That one that we were separated from when the first couple sinned in the garden. We we're restored to at the end of the Revelation, where we can eat from it day and night. But it's the cross of Christ that has done this restoring work for us. He has restored, as even you know, the man and the other thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That restoration came to him; he could eat from the tree of life again. Okay, so this is the first church, the first church of Ephesus. You can see there's some specific ways that Jesus talked to them. We're going to get through as many of these as we can, and then we're going to stop. And uh, if, you, if the first person goes to sleep, then I'll, that doesn't mean anything. That happens every week. But I'll give you <laughs> The second church is called the Church of Smyrna, which may or may not be how you pronounce it. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue or are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Smyrna was this beautiful city um, and there was a, apparently there was a strong emperor cult. They worshipped Caesar in that city and there was also a hostile group of Jews, the synagogue of Satan. That's a good catchy name for them, isn't it? I don't think that's what they call themselves. <laughs> and this this church in Smyrna is under great... Con- con- persecution, under constant hardship because of those who are around them, okay they are a church who is weak, who is small who is persecuted, you notice already, Jesus, there's no, there's no rebuke there for these ones, is there, just encouragement and he starts by saying, I'm the first and the last, the one who lived and the one who died if you're under great persecution, what do you really need to know God's in control. Jesus is ruling over all things. That's really important, isn't it? That he was the first and last. He's always been there. He's in control of what you're uh, facing. And he he died and came to life. Why is that important? Well, under persecution is always the fear of death. You need to know that Jesus is the one who raises people from the dead. Yeah. Don't fear because that is He brings a solid encouragement. Again, the importance of the gospel. It just imagine, I mean, we can't actually imagine what people are going through in Ukraine, I don't think. Uh, imagine if you said to them, Don't fear, we've got a general who's better than their general. Don't fear, we've got an army stronger than their army. We've got good medicine too, don't fear. That's actually, don't fear, you probably won't die. Um, How about, don't fear, you know the one who has control over all things and if you trust in him, you will be raised from the dead. Can you see, there is an encouragement and a comfort which is solid and foundational and we need. And they need. And the whole world needs. Especially the Western world, which is never going to die. We're going to live forever. So we don't have to, don't mention death. Put your hands over your ears and go, "Ah," and no one will ever, I'm never going to die. I'm saying that mockingly because that's what Westerners think. They don't ever want to think about it. Well, we don't know when it's going to happen. It will happen. But when you know Jesus, that's not the end. Okay. Because that's, that's not a bad news message. You're taking bad news, negative messages. It's like, what, eternal life? Yeah, how horrible. Yeah. Jesus knows these people's afflictions, their tribulation and their poverty. They are poor. And then it says, you are poor. Oh, by the way, you're rich. Do you think he's talking about money there? Not at all. Do you notice he didn't say to them, you're poor and you're weak, but if you have faith in me, you'll become strong and rich. Yeah? No, he tells them about the eternal treasures that come through Christ, not the fleeting things of these lives. Does that make sense? Don't get caught up in the desire for the riches of this world. Jesus calls them weeds that are going to come up and they're going to choke you. They're going to strangle you out. Here's a church that is weak, it's hated, it's persecuted, it's poor. And Jesus says to them, by the way, you are really rich. You have got what counts in your life. There are also Jews in that community who claim to be true Jews and he calls them synagogue of Satan. Do you know that in, in Romans, at the end of Romans 2 and in, at the end of Galatians 3, we're told that the true Israel, the true Jews, are those who have faith in Jesus. Do you know that? That's the true Israel. Not those who try and bring... Old Testament laws or any other laws upon you and say, then you'll be holy, then you'll be God's people. Okay, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he says... uh, you're actually going to come under even deeper suffering, and some of you will die because of this suffering, because of your, your faith. This is the reality. The ten days, it, again, is not necessarily a literal ten days, but it's saying this: you're going to su- suffer for a period of time, but knowing that it's not going to last forever. It's not going to be you're not going to be tortured for six years, right? Uh, it, it is going to come to an end. It'll be limited, but even then. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the one who will give you the crown of life. Okay. Be faithful unto death. Know that following death for believers, you're going to end up wearing a crown. Now that crown is the word Stephanos, which is a, is like the victory wreath that uh, you know the ones they put on their heads in the in the Olympic games and stuff like that. Well, you are going to win the race. When you're in Christ. So fix your eyes on him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Right, you know what the first death is? That's when you die. We will all die. Okay, that is not something to be feared. When you're in Christ, you need not fear that. There is after that a judgment day. Followed by a second death for the wicked. For those who refuse to trust in Jesus. That is to be feared at all costs. You don't want to go through the second death. Okay? And he's saying, can you hear what I'm saying? The one who trusts in Jesus, yes, you might die, but you will not be hurt by the second death. Be there. Trust in Jesus. That's a good word, isn't it? If you're in Christ. If you're not, trust in him. Turn to him. Okay, again, I just say, he doesn't bring any rebuke to that church. There are times when Jesus just wants to bring his comfort to people who are in great need. He does the same today. We're going to get through one more church. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Pergamon was a place, like, it's almost like Satan's throne's there and you're under the shadow of that. I know where you dwell, you dwell in an evil place. Okay. Uh, There are many pagan gods in Pergamum. But Jesus says, but I've got a two-edged sword and it's sharp. Okay? His words, the word of God, rightly divides. A sword divides. Doesn't it? I I, I know I use this analogy all the time, but you've got a lump of meat sitting on a big block of wood and you bring a sword down on it hard, right? Right? Some will go this way and some will go this way, but there's nothing left in the middle. That's the word of God,? Okay? It, it actually divides. He, we're told later, and he divides the, na- the nations with his sword. And in verse 16, in a minute, he to like, "He's making a war against the heretics in this church. He is, he is warring against false truth with the word of His spirit. Oh, sorry, with the Word of God. But also in Ephesians 6, it's called the Word of the Spirit. Because sometimes people say, Oh, if you're all into the Bible. How about the Holy Spirit? It's like, you can't separate the Holy Spirit from the Bible. The Holy Spirit's the one who teaches through the Bible. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible all the time. We need to know the Scripture. Then the Holy Spirit gives us something to work with. Do you understand? He is wielding his sword in the church. Um I think uh, as, a, as our church, uh, some of you are from uh, different churches, but something we realised uh, when, when everything started to go a bit funny for us is that we'd run our church based more on keeping people together and maybe you'd call that popularity or peacemaking or whatever. In other words, what we wanted to do is keep our sword nice and blunt because when you keep your sword blunt, you don't do that ugly dividing. Oh, by the way, you can't stop Jesus dividing anyway. He does that. Do you understand? And it's a very, very important thing for his word to divide within the church. Otherwise, you end up with, with what? With schmaltziness. You end up with weakness. Okay. That's a deep thought. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and we do know who he was, who taught Balak to to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practise sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what he's saying is, there's some people among you who have kind of combined your Christianity with other religions about you. Does that make sense? That's most commonly what we do. We, if, if you ever look at the Christian faith of other countries, you go, oh, they've, they've, they've merged their pagan stuff with their Christianity. What you never see is the way we do that in our country. And we do it all the time. We, we bring in the ways of the world. That whole idea of God wants you to have a nice, a, a nice life of ease where, you, where you're healthy and rich and all that sort of stuff. What does that come from? Well, that's Australia's doctrine. That's not the church's doctrine, isn't it? And when you combine that pagan idolatry with Christianity, you have to make them work together. Does that make sense? Well, you might know Cole from um, Durembandy, who owns the food works down there. When he, when he became a Christian, he became a Christian from being a Buddhist. And then at one night we were talking at a men's night there about uh, the positive thinking Christianity and the prosperity gospel creed, and he said, "Oh, that's just Buddhism combined with Christianity. That's what it is." You see, you put it when you syncretise, it's not that you don't use the Bible; it's just you don't use all the Bible. Just use some bits of the Bible and syncretise it with the bits that you really like. From some other doctrine or from something from the world, combine them, and you actually you face up to somebody who's holding a sword. It's Jesus. Okay, it's not a good place to be. So Balaam represents those who are tricking the people of God into sin, and and they they were they were in idolatry and sexual immorality. Right through the scriptures, that's always what happens, isn't it? People people are going to idolatry, end up in sexual immorality. God hands them over to their sin, Romans 1 says. And um, this is the things the church of Ephesus stood up against. It's a frightening thing, though, to say, oh, by the way, Jesus is coming with his sword. Oh, who's he bringing it against? It's got to be those people down the street, right? No, the church. And punishment is close. It will come. If they fail to repent. So, if you want to apply this today to yourself, if you're living in idolatry, if you're worshipping something apart from God, if you're putting a hope, if you're serving anything that's not God, or if you're living in sexual immorality of any sort, then repent quickly. That's what it's saying. Quickly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. And a new name on that stone that no one else knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's so much imagery in uh, in the Revelation. Hidden manna. You know what the manna was? In the desert, wasn't it? The food that God miraculously fed them with day by day to sustain them and keep them going. Jesus is the bread of life, isn't He? He he, in John six, He says, "I'm the manna from heaven." Um, He is God's provision for us. He is our sustenance through the journey, through the desert. If you hear and obey and overcome and conquer, God will give you the manner you need. He will give you your daily bread. He will give you what you need for the journey you face. It may be a hard journey. It will be a purifying journey. That's the sword of the Spirit, the sword of God, the Word of God. It's, but it's a good journey. No one really knows what the white stone means. Except for, they do know this, on the island of Patmos there's lots and lots of different colour stones on the beaches, but there are zero white stones. None of those. That's interesting, isn't it? Could mean that it's a promise that you get through God, which is rare. White often means purity. Yeah, this purity is rare, but it is really important and you'll be given it when you obey Christ. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it's something else. I like that. And you'll be given a new name. And your name is not just a name. It is your identity. It's who you are. It's more than just a title. We've gone through three churches there. What I want to hear now is simply this. God is working in your life. Jesus sees everything you do, every thought, every motive, every word. He knows all of that. He loves you and he is refining you. He is purifying you. He is sanctifying, which sanctifying means holifying, making you holy. He is working on you. I think we all need to do this sometimes because we're all pretty self, whatever, what's the word? Sometimes we should entertain the thought just for a minute that we might need changing. Just entertain that thought that God actually might be looking at something in your life and saying, that's actually not right. But just, just entertain the thought. Don't do anything with it. right? Don't go actually changing. Don't pray. I'm oh, sorry, just sarcasm. right? Pray. Seek him. Allow his reform to work in your life. You don't want to come against the one with the sword who's all-powerful. And... Remember your first love. Remember him. Allow his, allow his rebukes and his comfort to comfort you. And when you're in your times of, uh, of really hardships, he will be there. You don't have to ask for that. He is there for you in those times. That's a, a really full sum up of a, a great passage, but I'm going to pray. Father, we want to thank you for the word that you've given us and the word you gave to these three churches. And I want to pray, Father, that you would make them real to us, that you would minister to us at our point of need, uh, that your spirit would powerfully work in us and bring us uh, your purity. And we want to thank you for your discipline, even though sometimes we don't like it. We want to thank you that you love us so much That you are changing us and working on us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.